Hey, what's up, y'all? Welcome to Conversations with Heavy Cardboard. I am very, very excited today to welcome one of the true legends of board game design, especially when it comes to the war game side of things, political games. So welcome uh, to the show. We've been design. Uh, he's been designing games since the 1970s with SPI, was the president of Victory Games. Desi- he's designed a countless number of games for GMT as well as Avalon Hill. Such titles as We the People and For the People, Washington's War, Empire of the Sun, Churchill, uh, Fire in the Lake with Vocal Runke, and far, far more. I am, of course... Speaking of Mark Herman, so Mark, welcome to uh, welcome to Heavy Cardboard. Hello, Edward. How are you doing? I am. Uh, I'm excited. I'm nervous. I'm all the things. This is this is a true um, exciting privilege for me to be able to sit down and talk uh, with you. So I appreciate oh, you taking the time, Mark. It's a. It's. It, I, I enjoy talking to folks. So what's going on today? Uh, let's see today. Um, this this is it this in preparing for heavy con uh which happens well now that it's may uh in just under uh four weeks my own little convention that oh. i put on for the show so i didn't know about it so heavy con where do you, where do you hold that oh well now it's in dan or in danvers which is just north kind of northish of boston about 30 35 minutes oh, yeah, towards the main border yeah, kind of uh, yeah. towards New Hampshire and all yeah, that, because yeah. I know you you were talking that you're uh, I'm in Harwich right now. So I'm, if you're in Boston, I'm about, you know, 90 minutes at max south of you. Well, uh, and you would before we got started today, you had mentioned, hey, if you want to do some war gaming this summer yeah, we'll uh, do that. and and yes, we, we need to do that. That sure. needs to happen. Absolutely. Carte blanche. Yes. So uh, I like I said, I appreciate you taking the time with this. And I know you. I'm not going to say you talk for a living. You did for one at one point, though, right? You were a uh, you you taught. Uh, well, I still teach. I, I, I've, I've taught uh, military history at uh, the Naval War College, um, uh, Georgetown University. Uh, and uh, and I also well, I teach math at Columbia University. But that's different. I don't teach. Military. So. Well, okay, let's talk about that a little bit. You have a degree in history. You have a master's degree in national security studies. That's what right. got you interested in history to begin with? You know, so you got to remember my age. So when I was six, it was 1960, was the centennial of the American Civil War. And despite what people say, I was not in the Civil War. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so as a kid, it was like, you know, remember that it's a different world, right? There's no Internet. There's no there's black and white TV. I mean, it's just a different world. You know, I just grew up in a different planet in a different world. And so the centennial thing got a lot of play, and so it got me interested. And my mother got me this like how and why book on the American Civil War, and I I read it, and I went like wow. And so then I just started reading, and it just got me fascinated. And so the Civil War was where I kind of began the journey uh, on the history side. Okay, and from there it just didn't stop. Apparently, no, no, it did not. Uh, uh, also. Um, you know, my one of my first, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis was one of my first memories. You know, that, so wow. that also got me interested. Like, oh wow, this is world, and what is this nuclear weapon thing, and what? <laughs> so, yeah, so it was an interesting times when I was when I was young. Well, when I was, uh, I listened to some of your uh, interview when you sat down uh, a couple times uh, with Harold over on uh, his show, and you had talked about uh, you've been to Gettysburg countless number of times well i was on the board i was on the board of directors at the gettysburg foundation so yeah i've been i mean i i when i say i've been there a hundred times that may be wrong but it's not wrong like maybe i've been there 86 times i mean but i've been there you know i've I helped fix the fences you know there's a 
there's an or, a volunteer organization called the First Corps, and um, you know, so uh, every like about uh, several times a year, they uh, have the volunteers in, and you know, you come and you fix the rail fences, and you know, do all that kind of stuff. And there's, you know, I did things at the museum, and so you know, it's, it's uh, it, Gettysburg is definitely an area that I uh, I know a little bit about. <laughs> I've given tours. Well, uh- I've even given tours there. Uh, on that note, you had talked uh, with Harold about uh, how you didn't want to do just another Gettysburg game and this and that. So how did that, what was the inspiration there and how did you go about tackling that? Well, it, so you, I don't know if there's a name that your folks know, a guy named Roger McGowan. Uh, of course, Roger GMT. is Yeah, yeah GMT, well, but Roger's I, also I, was originally Fire and Movement. You know, he's been a graphic artist in the wargaming field. In fact, if you look at, any number of the old, you know, uh, Avalon Hill, Yaquinto, all those companies. Roger did all the covers. I mean, I don't even know how many covers he's done. It's some crazy number. And um, and so, you know, I, I I collaborate with, you know, it's Roger's Magazine, and I, I supply a lot of content for it because, you know, in this world, uh, I like to have a place where I can have a voice, and so I have a column there, and so I, I write articles, and, you know, it gives me an opportunity to um, just write, which I like to do. And uh, he um, said to me, some friend of his said that he wanted to tell the friend of his, like, what's a good introductory war game? And he really couldn't suggest one anymore. Like, you know, some of the old SPI had a couple of titles. So he asked me, would I go off and, um, uh, you know, would I go off and, you know, do a, do a game for him? He said, I said, sure, I'll do that for you. I always say yes, yes, <laughs> to Roger. So he says, you know, what do you want to do it on? And I'm saying, oh, well, and I finally said, you know, I'll do Gettysburg. I mean, uh, I, I've never done a, you know, Gettysburg, there literally are, uh, if you go to BGG, I think there's something like, you know, almost 70 published games of Gettysburg, right? So, you know, I was willing to go do a Gettysburg game so it could be a beginner's game where I didn't have to, you know, try to do, you know, fire every bullet and, or do something right. in between. I wanted, and I wanted to do something that was very accessible, but I wanted it to be, you know, new, you know, so I kind of reinvented for myself i said what would what how would i reinvent the introductory beginner low low complexity game and i and it was was interesting whatever i came up with seems to the heavy car the heavy core war gamers really like it because it's fast and it captures the most of the you know the the big theme the big muscle movements of the battle of gettysburg are captured but you get to do it in like under an hour (laughs) so and so it's pretty impressive yeah so it only has like i don't think it has 20 it's like 17 pieces. So small map. And I, I, it's really good to play in a hotel room. I take it with me on the road a lot. Cause it's small. So was that, was that a design choice like going into it that you wanted to have a very low piece count and low just mm-hmm. t- the, to make it more accessible? Well, so the, there I've said this before. So, so that when I think about complexity, right, there are three kinds of complexity. Um, there is, um, the actual mechanical complexity of the game. And so I wanted that to be low, right? Then there's what I call teaching complexity. I've watched you, I've watched a number of your, uh, you know, uh, events where you're teaching uh, a game, right? I mean, you taught Churchill and it's, you know, a, a game that's hard to teach is, can be a problem, but that's, there's teaching complexity. So I think about sure. that when I teach a game. <laughs> and and that, 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 I mean, I'm grateful for that. <laughs> in some degree because that's that's you know that's right. uh uh you know it, it makes me able to do my job so yeah <laughs> so well that. but that's right. and then the third level is what i call decision complexity you know the actual strategic game itself and sure and clearly um 
one dimension of complexity is number of pieces, number of rules that you have to interact, number of procedures. So if you're going to do a beginner level game, you want to, and you want it to be easy to teach, you're going to have to keep the number of components and the space down. Otherwise, uh, you're just going to, there's that level of complexity that you, you know, it's good, you know, for a game that's deep and you want it to, you know, play for three hours. But if you want a game to play in under an hour, when I did Fort Sumter, I was looking for a game mm-hmm. that played in under a half hour. And some people go, well, it doesn't have enough theme. I said, it's 20 minutes, man. I mean, you know, <laughs> there's only, you know, this, this is this is this is a bicycle ride through a, you know, a museum here. You know, we're going to go fast. <laughs> you know, you're not going to get it all. <laughs> you know, so, you know, this is the, uh, the this is the cartoon short before the main movie. You know, we're, you know, give me a break. <laughs> right. I mean, exactly. Yeah. Given the constraints of what it is that you're trying to design, but, you're not going to get, you know, the right. true feel of everything. That but sense, however, right? I had guys criticizing the game. Uh, and then, but I, I asked them, you know, but I, I take all feedback. I mean, I've been, te- I've been told by people that they love my stuff. They hate myself. I'm an idiot. I'm a genius. I'm everything in between. And just, it rolls off my back, you know, I just, but I take the feedback cause you know, even the actually bad feedback is more useful in many ways than good feedback. Cause you learn something. So one guy goes to me, um, yeah, I mean, it's okay. I said, well, how many times did you play it? He goes, Oh, 45 times. <laughs> I, you played it 45 times and, oh, and I played it with my wife. Okay. So you played it with your wife 45 times. When was the last time you played any game 45 times? He said, Oh yeah, none. <laughs> so I go, okay. I, you couldn't have been, you certainly got your money's worth. <laughs> what am I to wow. say? I, it, it, uh, and, and that's something I'm still learning to deal with is, is the criticism side of things. But no, I agree with you. And I, I find that, I find that interesting that somebody is still going to, not belabor, but critique something that they've actually enjoyed the world. that much. Everybody loves to rate everything. That's fine. You know, it, the, the question I come back to is, did I do a professional game? The answer is yes. Then the next question is, did you, did you have fun? They go, you know, that's, you know, everybody's got a different view. Did you right. learn something? Did you enjoy the experience? I mean, did you get your money's worth? I mean, there's a whole lot of things that come into this, right? Um, I mean, I can't think of that, the number of, movies I went to with my wife and she said, I hated it. And I said, I like it. Or I said, I hated it. She said, she liked it. I mean, that happened, you know, after 40 years of marriage, I mean, that happened a lot of times. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, we all like and like dislike different things, you know? So, That's, but, uh, uh, but as long as I deliver a professional game and also my main criteria, I don't publish a game until I want to still play it. You know, so like, if I don't want to play it, why would you want to play it? So I will tell you any game I publish, I like to play it. So for whatever that's worth all right. Well, for me, especially when it comes to war games, uh, historical games in general, the thing that I like most about these type of games is, and this goes back to what you have your degree in, is I've noticed that games have gotten me interested in the history and the history have gotten me interested in some of the games, like something like an unhappy King Charles or a, you know, a, a Washington's war, whereas the just musket time period, you know, whether it's, um, American revolution through Napoleon, stuff like that, that never really was my big cup of tea. And still, until I started playing some of these war games, 
which got me interested now in the history and makes me want to either go and read something or listen to something like a Dan Carlin podcast or something along yeah, the Carlin. lines of that. That's a long listen. <laughs> but, but, yeah, but it's great stuff. I, I love Dan Carlin. But, you know, I got I, it takes me sometimes a month to listen to a whole Dan Carlin five hour, six hour podcast. And then it's, and it's only part one. <laughs> I, uh, but I, I, I'm glad it exists because I find it fascinating. Uh, so, okay. So let's, let's go back, uh, a couple of years, a couple days, uh, back to the seventies. Talk about what, okay. I mean, you talked about being interested in history from being a young child, but how did that then translate into playing board games? What got you into the hobby and what got you from there into designing games? All right. Well, remember, I, I was still I was still a kid, believe it or not, in the seventies. But um, uh, so when I was about six, I have a cousin who, thank God, is still alive. Uh, he taught me how to play chess when I was about six. So for the from like six till you know for a long time, that the main game I played was chess. If you want to think about strategic, I mean, I played checkers and. Um, Oh, we all love Stratego. That was like a big, you know, that was huge when that came out. We all, I mean, I think I played Stratego. God, I couldn't even count how many times we played Stratego. <laughs> and of course, the usual Monopoly and all that stuff sure. got played. So so those were the kind of the games of the day. Uh, but chess was the main, you know, game I really liked to play. And then when I was 12, I was, you know, and I remember I like had this, you know, knowledge of history. So I was always reading history books. I read everything. I, I, I learned how to, my mother was, um, must have been very. She had nothing to do, I guess. When I was our oldest, so she told me how to read. I was actually able to read before I got to kindergarten. So I've been reading, you know, I've been reading five, six hundred pages a week, probably since I was like around uh, ten. So wow. you read a lot of books that way. You know, I read a lot. So you pick up stuff. I used to read sports books, and you know, read everything. So, um, so I, I had this fairly good knowledge of history, World War Two, you know, whatever for a kid. I mean, not, not where I am now, and. I saw this Avalon Hill game in a store once uh, called the Battle of the Bulge, and it looked kind of cool. So I, I got my brother to give me a couple of bucks because I didn't have enough. We, it was five ninety five. We bought the game, brought it home. He's, and then my brother's about four years younger than me, so he took a look at this thing. He was expecting little soldiers and tanks and stuff like that, and it's all these cardboard pieces with little numbers. He goes, "What the heck is this?" So I had to buy him out, and then I actually taught myself how to play Battle of the Bulge <laughs> from reading the rules. Right there was nobody to teach me, so you know. So luckily, I. You know, everybody goes, was that hard to do? I said, no, just read the rules. I mean, it's all in there. And then uh, I taught my then I taught uh, my good friends, Gary Gonzalez and Jimmy Dudalakis had a play. And then they bought copies. And then we played Battle of the Bulge for about a year. And then then we found this store that sold other Avalon Hill games. because That was the only ones in our area. We found this store. We used to take us about three hours by bus to get there uh, in Subway. Uh, you know, city kids are different. Like we, they let us out of the house. They, they expect us to show up at some point. So we exactly right. Come, so, come back when it's dark out. And yeah, sure. You when know, you right. come back for dinner, you know, and so exactly. we went out and to a place called Westbury. We used to buy these games. And so we got Africa core. And so the Avalon Hill games were the beginning of it. And, and I was hooked. And then when I was in, so when you said the seventies, so somewhere I got into high school in 69. So somewhere in high school, um, I discovered this company called SPI. Uh, they were doing it. And so we used to go to New York and buy games out of a, you know, the offices had like a little storefront, you know, a counter you could buy games. And so we used to go in there and buy some games. And then, and I, I was always fascinated with ancient. That's actually what my degree is in ancient history, actually. So, um, uh, you know, Peloponnesian War, Pericles, you know, all that stuff. 
Absolutely. And so we, there was this game Phalanx, and that got us all hooked on, you know, cavalry charges and spears and Alexander the Great and all this good stuff. And, um, you know, then I was doing that. And then somewhere when you're going to college, one day you kind of go, ooh, I'm going to graduate. <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> so I was at the first Origins, and I went up to um, – the SPI booth, I said, Hey, uh, you know, at that time I was going into my senior year. I said, you know, what's, uh, how do you get a job there? And they were like, look, you know, so well show up on Friday nights and play tests. We'll get to know you, maybe write an article for moves magazine, et cetera. So I, uh, I did all that and, um, got out of college. Um, and I was living with this girl in Southampton who I'm still living with. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it worked out. Um, and, um, I got a job as a receptionist for SPI. So then that's how I got in to the business. All right. And then how did it go from playing and play testing to, oh, hey, I want to try my hand at, you know, making these games? Well, that was the thing. I, I, they knew all along I was, you know, I was play testing, but I, they knew I wanted to design games. And so I got to this, I was a receptionist because I knew all the games. So that, you know, so, you know, the amount of people that I probably saw in a week was probably like in the 20, you know, 20 people a week would come in to buy games. So it wasn't like, you know, like a, like a, a retail outlet. It was just kind right. of quiet. I answered the phones, you know, did little bits of work and research for people in the R and D department. And then, um, and, and it just so happened that, uh, SPI had just done a contract for the U S army, a game called firefight. And so it turned out that in the, um, they had a library and in the library, there was a stack of every single army manual that was tall. I'm six foot one. It was about seven feet of manuals. So in the month of September 1976, I read every single word that the U.S. Army had published in their manuals, and um, I became the expert on modern warfare because of that. And then one guy got into trouble. You know, the uh, the magazine had a very firm schedule, so if a guy got behind schedule on some projects, the magazine games had to be finished. So they threw this game to me after about a month called October War. And then after that, a game called Jerusalem 67. And before that, I was like the developer for the whole quad. And so now I'm doing games and I was off the desk. And, you know, the rest is in those two and a half years at S- uh, SPI did 18 games, I think. Wow. Did you enjoy that being thrown through the wolves like that? Oh, I, please. That was, that was what I was. That's what I wanted to do more than anything else at the time. So uh, didn't pay that well. But it was, you know, I had a very nice lifestyle for somebody who was uh, starving to death. <laughs> <laughs> So what, how, how did you go about that though? Okay. So you go, I realized that you wanted to design games, but going from having play tested and, and obviously being that intimately involved in SPI there, how did you go about that process back then of designing itself? You know, I wish I, you know, people have asked me a million times, how do you design a game? And the answer is, I do. I I mean, I mean, I obviously, uh, well, first off, to be much better. That's that's really in, in disingenuous. Um, there are certain aspect of it as I I knew games well and I play in, you know, I put the 10th you know, there's this thing about if you do anything for 10,000 hours, you become very good at it. Yes. So I would have to say I probably put in the 10,000 hours on, you know, a more games before I got to SPI. So I had oh, to, you okay. know, I had that under my belt. So I knew a lot about war games at that point. And then, of course, you know, guess what? I got mentored directly by Jim Dunnigan and Redmond Simonson. So it was like it was like an apprentice at a guild. You know, I had, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I got to, you know, I, and my hours were strange because I um, 
I, you know, I was right, you know, I was 21, you know, so I, I was running around New York City till dawn. I'd sleep from about dawn till noon and show up at work and I'd work till midnight, one o'clock in the morning. And Redmond more or less lived in the office. So I would, if I had a problem or I was thinking about something, I'd walk down the hall and talk to Redmond for an hour and he'd go, oh, well, you can think about this, you can think about that. So I had people to bounce, it's SPI, I had people to bounce ideas off of and improve them. And, you know, so it was, um, I was raised by two of the greats in the business. I mean, how do, you know, it's like, you know, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you fail if Jim Dunnigan and Redmond Simonson teach you how to be a game designer? I, I was just I mean, going to say, like, that's really, I give, I have to blame them for it more than anything I did, but I had, you know, I was receptive. All right. How, how have things changed then from the way you designed back then to how you design now? Cause I mean, it's been a day. Yeah, it's been a lot of days. Um, you know, you know, you evolve. I mean, I, well, what it was for me is uh, obviously this whole getting married and being a father thing required more income than st- the starving artist part of my life. So I got, and because of my um, doing this, this learning, you know, Next War was a game I did way back in SPI days. And that got noticed by guys in the Pentagon and they basically gave me a job doing it for them. So that actually paid real money. So, so I moved to Washington. And so, so then there was a, there were periods of time where I was designing like a game, like once every five years or, you know, that kind of thing. Cause I was working. And so in a lot of ways, there was sort of a period of like reflection and I evolved my thinking. And so when I kind of did a game over a longer period of time, I kind of said, what do I have to do with this way? And so I, and I've always been like, sort of not a good follower. So I sort of just started thinking through better ways to represent the history. And then also one of the things you discover once you're, you've had kids is time is, is, you know, the time I had when I was, you know, in college, I could, you know, stay up all night and do all this crazy stuff. You don't do that anymore. So the games had to be um, shorter and you're living in smaller space. So you can't leave them set up. And, you know, so you evolve your thinking based on life. It, it makes you evolve. So the, uh, the CDG, um, mm-hmm. how did, how did that idea come about? How did, how did you decide, is that what you're talking about with that evolution? Oh of yeah. Thinking well, outside we, the, the people happened in that, that period. Of the, so I guess that's like around, so I left SPI in 1987 and excuse me, oh, God, 19, I left victory games in 1987 Right. So I worked for the Avalon Hill Company, which I ran the Victory Games division, and I left in '87 from there. And Eric Dot, may God rest his soul, uh, was my boss back when I was working at the, you know he's the head of Monarch Avalon. And one day he calls me up. He had to. I'm going to imitate Eric, but he's a great guy. He goes, Mark, Mark. He had this kind of. I go. I need a. I need an introductory game on the American Revolution. Can you do it? I go. Okay. So that was pretty much Easy the enough. All right. So I start doing this game and I basically did this game, um, uh, you know, design and it was pretty much, um, you know, 1776, which was an old Avalon Hill game. And it was okay. You know, I didn't love it, but it was, it was okay. It was again, simple. Right. And then I got to reading in the rear books division at the, the library, this book, did you ever see the the, the TV show turn? No. If you ever do, there's a character in the book uh, called uh, Colonel Simcoe, Lieutenant Colonel Simcoe, who's actually a real person. And he's not badly played by the actors. You know, he's kind of a, you know, he's kind of a vicious guy. 
But uh, after the war, he goes back to England. He wrote a memoir. And when I read his memoir, I realized the American Revolution was like Vietnam. It was a guerrilla war. It was, you know, mm-hmm. the big battle. Whatever I learned in school was not inaccurate, but it was far from the story. And so I really started getting deep into the story of the American Revolution. And I realized that it was really a insurgency, counterinsurgency with some moving armies around. And I got this whole nother picture. And so and, and what people keep saying, they always focus on the CDG piece, but it was really an area control game. You know, the, the colony, it's all the hearts and minds. It was a hearts and minds game. And then along the way, I said, you know, there's all these interesting events. And, you know, that leads to tons of tables. And, of course, at that time, uh, I had seen, you know, I've been playing with my daughter, uh, Magic the Gathering. And I said, you know, why can't I put this stuff on cards? You know, there's, you know, why can't I just put historical, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, big, big green monster 2020. It could be, you know, whatever. And so I, so I, I came up with this idea to use the cards. And then, and then instead of them just being an event deck, I said, well, why, why can't the cards do the whole thing? And that just kind of became, I, I didn't know I was designing a CDG. I was designing a, you know, a historical game on the American revolution. And, and obviously it was, it's interesting. It's, it's far more. It's it is treat, it is looked upon much better now than it, the Hex Encounter War Game was one crazy. Oh, I can. Oh no, you can't. Oh, and the only thing that saved me was there wasn't much of an internet. Otherwise, it would have been like you know it would have blown the top off the internet. But it it didn't even win any awards. I mean, everybody hated it. But it it just seemed. But there was a group of people who really dug it. And what more importantly, it brought competition back into war. Wargaming was never a competitive sport. You know, there was, you know, the games, we, we played the game, we enjoyed the narrative, but winning and losing wasn't that big a deal. But all of a sudden, for some reason, we the people really, you know, the whole thing of cards made it very competitive and it was very well balanced, which was, uh, well, that was good. And so, <laughs> and so people just really went, loved it. And then, you know, then a guy named Mark Simonich, who's also a great designer, really dug it. So he picked it up. And then this guy named Ted Racer picked it up. So that's Paz of Glory and uh, Hannibal. And then I did for the people. So we kind of established this genre. And in fact, after I did, we, the people, Mark Simonich was a good friend of mine. We actually, I, I, I've looked, I never kept the emails, but there was about a dozen emails where we really kind of brought, what is this? We actually had to go back and say, what, what the hell just happened? And we analyzed it. And so I, I really internalized what had happened because it's it, what didn't occur to me when I was doing it, what was happening. So I had to go back and go, I had to revisit the scene of the crime and say, what are the, what's really going, what makes this really work? Why is it working? And that analysis is, you know, and I've seen a lot of CDG since and some work and some don't, but I also see when they violate what I think are some basic tenets of it. Okay. And, so, well, that begs the next question. What sure. do you think are the basic tenets of a CDG then? Well, and for those listening, uh, CDG being a card-driven game or a card-driven war game to where you have basically you can use it for the event or for, you know, command points or CPs as the general. Well, I don't want to speak no, for you. The, you the, tell the, us, Mark. Well, the, the great thing is that if you go to BGG and as soon as anybody tries to define, so I think there's a new thread out, you know, trying to define a CDG and it should get to a raging nerd fight in about another two or three days, you know, because anytime you try to define anything, people go crazy. So, you oh know, boy, don't they? Oh yeah. I mean, but, but I find that to be more trivial and amusing. Than it. It's, it's like, it's just like, I don't know what it's like, but it's, it's amusing to me. Uh, but I, I think that what gets, what, what, here's one of the things I find interesting, and I'll kind of come back to the point of what makes a CD, what I think makes a CDG, but it's really what makes a good game, because people 
focus on mechanics. So it's they go, what kind of game is it? Is it worker placement? Is it you know car driven? Is it? And, and I'm going like, what? I don't even think that way. See, I don't. Okay. I never start with a mechanic. I go, what am I trying to do here? You know, if I'm trying to simulate something. You know, I want to make a game about Fort Sumter. I want to make a game about you know church. See Churchill. One of the biggest problems Churchill has, people go, what's Churchill like? And they go, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't, they don't have a, and then everybody goes, oh, well, if you can't tell me what it, it's like, if you can't tell me what it's like, then it must be bad. Well, okay. But it is a game about Churchill. <laughs> and I don't know that you could use it exactly in that manner for any other kind of game ever. I don't try to make a series of games, which is why I never came wealthy from this. You know, I did well otherwise, but. This is not how. This is not why I'm sitting in Cape Cod and uh, and you know and, and not you know starving artist anymore. Right. Uh, but uh, but I do do a game based on the situation of what I want it to be, and it's very bespoke. I don't try to you know cram stuff in that because because I used it once before I use it again. Although I have stolen pieces of my own ideas, but you know I make I make it fit the thing. You know I want the suit has to fit whatever the situation is, and you don't. And it's better if it's cut to fit from the beginning than trying to resize something to make it fit. It doesn't work as well. So then going back to your question, what makes a car-driven game um, a car-driven game? Well, I think uh, the, the first thing is that the, the cards – and again, it's the hand of cards, right? It's not just one card because if you look at the, the success of the coin series and you know, I think and I've told this to Volko many times, the brilliance of the coin system is they take, by taking the hand of cards out, they lowered the strategic complexity dramatically. In other words, I got, I, I, here's the card you can look at. Do you want it or you don't want it? And here's the next card coming. Do you want that one? So you only have, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, let's make a deal. So do you want door number one or you want what's sitting in front of, you know, the young girl here on the table, you know, do you want what's on the table you can see or do you want what's coming next behind door number one? And that's a much easier choice than I got seven cars I can play in any order that that is by nature a very complex, you know, uh, Richard Garfield, who I once played magic with, by the way, very cool guy. And Richard Garfield has a PhD in combinatorial mathematics. So if you're going to be a car designer, you got to know you know, the end choose case of, you know, and so he and I talked about, you know, I'm, I'm just, my father was really good. I'm naturally okay at math. And so he and I talked about math, you know, card mathematics, which was kind of cool. But the point of, of all that is, is that what makes a card driven game interesting or any hand of cards interesting, forgetting about whether it's card driven or not, is that you have this um, choice. It's like, what's going first? What's going second? What's the advantage of the, you know, how do I create efficiency out about the order? You know, it's like bridges. Look, look at the game of bridge, right? Bridges, you know, the bid and then what order you play the cards in. So you get, you make your contract and all that stuff. Well, it's all the same basic ideas that cards create this need for priority and choices. And that's what makes games fun. I mean, if you, if you, if it's the right situation and you're enjoying the narrative of the game. And so that's the first part is. It's about choices. And what's interesting is, and I think that in some ways it's a better simulation than people ever thought it was, is that I've worked I've worked in the Pentagon for, you know, 30 years. And a senior general in the middle of a real war, and I've been there, they can't decide 20 things at once. They're going to decide one thing, right? You've been in the military. You know, it's yeah. like, okay, we got to do this today. You know, you're not doing 40 things. You're going to do two things. And so that sense of priority based on the circumstance and – is an important piece of a car-driven uh, game. The other thing is, which is really cool about car-driven games, is 
who has the initiative is an emergent property of the game. In other words, if I play a card and you have to react to me, I have the initiative. We don't have to have a rule about it. It just happens. You know, so you're pl- when you were playing Churchill the other day with um, that nice young lady and that other guy. Um, yep, yep, with Jess and Rayner. Yep. Jason Rayner, okay. Uh, so if she played a card on an, on an issue and you wanted that issue, you had to debate it, you're reacting to her, right? Right. If she plays the card and you go, oh, I don't give a care, then she doesn't have the initiative. You know, she got what she wanted, but it doesn't bother you. It's not interfering with your plans. When you're playing um, Empire of the Sun, if I play an attack and you go, okay, you got that island, but I'm not going to hit you here somewhere else, I don't have to defend, it didn't bother me. But if I have to go, oh, wait a minute, if you got that place and you're going to get this place, I better get in the way of that place. Now I'm reacting. And so this natural initiative reaction thing occurs in the game, no rules. It just, and that's what's really kind of exciting about a card-driven game in my mind, is this natural ebb and flow that's created by your decisions and your opponent's decisions, not by some set of rules that tell you it's your turn and what you can do. So, and then beyond that, um, I think that card-driven games are particularly strong at the strategic level. You know, the, the senior decision-maker fighting a war is where I think they shine. They don't do everything well. Now, cards have been used very effectively. Look at the um, Chad Jensen's uh, Combat Commander series. It's incredibly, it's a great game. Um, and he uses cards, but more like up front uses cards uh, in that way. But again, great excitement. Uh, right. But it's oh, a different kind of game. Tactical and very, very tactical. Driven, narrative driven. Yep. Right. Very exciting. Creates an amazing narrative. But for me, if you look at the games I tend to focus on is I've, you know, having worked all those years in the Pentagon, I'm really focused on, I've seen how everybody thinks it's a, it's a war game. No, it's really a political military game. The, pol- the policy and politics drives what the military is going to do. Not, in the, not at the tactical level, certainly, you know, the president's not around when some Marine platoon sergeants trying to keep everybody alive and getting the job done. That's a different story than your president Lincoln trying to, you know, put the union back together. Those are different stories. But card-driven games are particularly good, I think, at the strategic operational level. The tactical level is very hard to simulate on a board anyway. I, in fact, I, one of the, I teach a course for the Army, and I tell them that the most realistic simulations, historical games you can play are at the strategic level because, you know, the president, you know, with Churchill, if you've ever been to his bunker, he sat in a room 40 feet underground under concrete. You saw the movie uh, uh, Darkest Hour? Did you see yes. that movie? Okay. Where's Churchill sitting? A bunch of people sitting in a little worn of rooms. You don't hear any German. I mean, they show you the front, but there's no German bombs landing in the room. There's nobody shooting at them. They're looking at maps and pegs. Does that not look like a war game? Right. I mean, a strategic level war right. game, right? But when, yeah. but when you were with, um, would you say, Mag 21? Uh, Mag 31, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah, sorry. South Carolina. No, my, it's my apologies to the Marine Corps. Uh, Mag 31. You were looking at a whole set of issues that are very tactical, like we got to get the, you know, we got to get these birds in the air. This one's broken. You've got a whole different op, op tempo. Right. That is a very different set of decisions that are not, you know, strategic things are interesting, but they have no effect on the fact that I, this thing's broken. I got to fix it. You know, right. Yeah. And, 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 and I think that I think that's fascinating how there are different levels within wargaming as far as depending on what story and what narrative you're trying to. But those narratives ma- match how the military thinks about war. You see, that's not we didn't create that. That's that's the real world. You know, um, the U.S. Army until until it was really the so we used to say strategy and tactics. That was the American way of war. Uh, the Russians 
the Soviets, I'm sorry, but you know, the Russian Soviets, you know, they re- and the Germans really thought about this operational level of art, which was between like a theater, you know, and and we we came late to that table. The other interesting thing, you know, you mentioned that you were trying to define a CDG and you said that, you know, it had like a card and it had a number, right? Well, what's interesting, and, ha- and by the way, you mentioned Unhappy King's Charles. So an old friend of mine is uh, Charlie Vasey is an old friend of mine and great guy. And he did that game. And he and I once sat in London getting, well, we got quite drunk, actually. (laughs) I think it was somewhere around the third bottle of wine. We started getting into design theory. And we decided that in We the People and Washington's War, its um, sequel, you get a hand of cards, but a card is either an event or it's it's an operational thing. You don't get the the duality. And and he and I felt that in pre – see – the, the whole idea of a general staff, like a staff of people, came really in like the mid to late 19th century. You know, that's like a German invention of the German staff and this whole idea of a bunch of professionals that hang around a general and you know, do all this other stuff. In the American Civil War, they, were, they, they had people doing stuff, but it was all very ad hoc You know, this guy, you know, you'll be the intelligence guy. Uh, I never did that before, but OK, I'm the intelligence. You know, so they created these these roles. And, you know, Washington was his own spy master, you know. Uh, so usually the general was the spy master, at least in American, you know, in, in you know, Washington. And that was true even in the Civil War. Then there was quartermaster general. That was the guy who was in charge of marching the troops. Quartermaster general is more than logistics. It's also like moving the army around and feeding it and where it stays. I mean, they're actually more important in the old days. And they're not just a logistician like they are today. And so pre-staff. We felt that that choice wasn't legitimate, you know, that you would have a choice between the event or the ops. It was one or the other. When, and so that was part of my my discussions with him. Simonich is the one who did the first said, you know what, I'm just going to put both on the same card. And he felt that that would create more tension in the cards, which I think was exactly right. Oh, so, it, it totally is because a lot of times you really yeah. want to do the event, but at the same time, what and what it doesn't matter what the game is if it's if it's compelling, the event is tempting, but you also desperately need to be able to use those command points for yeah. whatever it is that you're trying to do, and but, it's a really tough decision. But one of the big mistakes that gets made in a lot of CDGs is they say, well, if it's a really good event, I should have a really high value on it, right? It should be a high, you know, it should have that angst between a really good event and really. But unfortunately. There are some events that are very important, but they need to happen. You know, they call them – I used to call them mandatory events. When I did We the People, we had mandatory events, which, of course, in Twilight Struggle is every card's like a mandatory event, basically. <laughs> but right. I had a few. Um, but what happens then is there are events that are like, uh, you know, you want, uh, you want the Russian Revolution to happen. Well, if you – Put too high, you know. People, gamers are extraordinarily good at doing the min, max, you know, profit loss calculation. That's what we, that's what we all do, right? You go, oh, this is really worth more this way than that way. So you have to value the card in such a way that if you need the event to happen, you have to actually undervalue the command exactly. points. Exactly, it entices. And the a lot of a lot of a lot of games blow blow that. I see that all the time. They they don't understand that you got to sort of, you're overpricing it on one side or the other. And so the players can figure that out in like a nanosecond. You know, one thing I learned is the gamers are always much smaller than I am. So if there's a, if there's a hole in something, they're going to figure it out in about, you know, 10 minutes and go, Hey, was this play tested? You know, you're just smarter than no, I am. It what wasn't. No, you know, just, I never, yeah. over the five years, I was just kind of, you know, not doing much, but, but, but the point is, is that, you know, gamers are really smart. And so, you know, I, I blind test this stuff, but 
you know, you need those guys and girls who are just don't think like normal people and try to break stuff. You know, they, try they, to break games. Yes, yeah, those and, are and, and valuable. They're very valuable people. Uh, and also, I play them a lot also. And so I can, you know, if you play something enough, you'll see something. So I actually play my own, you know, I play test my own games. I don't farm that out. I mean, I farm it. I let other people play, but I play them. Because at the end of the day, if I can't understand what's going on, and that's why I'm always good. Well, the joke my kids tell is the reason I design games is that whenever a new game comes out, I'm the world champion until somebody else figures out how to play it, then I'm not. And then so I have to make a new game so I can be the world champion again. <laughs> that's one of our jokes in playtesting. The first time I do a public playtest, I said, whoever wins this game is the world champion. World champion. And everybody right. loves everybody. People love that. <laughs> this is my good friend of mine, Dan Dolan, still says he's the world champion in Pericles because he won the first game of Pericles that was played publicly. That's funny. It that's is. that's awesome. <laughs> by the way, so who, do you, who was he? Was a marine also, by the way. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, who do you design for? Who do I design for? I yeah, actually I, design for me. Good. I'm I'm actually encouraged and happy to hear that. Yeah. So, with that in mind, well, then, also why it's also why I never became rich from game design. <laughs> I do a lot of them. You, you design the games that you want to design, right? I want, I want to design the games I want to play. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, that's what I mean by that. Yeah. How, how, do you, how do you choose what you want to design? Because like you said, you have a degree in ancient history, which, you know, going back, you know, ancient Greeks, ancient Rome, et cetera, et cetera. It's mostly, it's actually that. a G in history. You know, see, when, see, what's interesting is people think you're a historian, you know a lot of history. The answer is I know a lot of history about a few things. Most history I don't know anything about, you know, more than most normal people because there's a lot of history. You know, they, do I know a lot about Chinese history? Well, I actually know a little bit about China, but I don't know a lot about, you know, uh, I don't know, Thai history, you know, Thailand history or Siam. I, I know some, but I don't know a lot about most history or periods. I mean, there's a lot of history out there. So I have about five or six areas I'm very deep in and the rest I kind of just enjoy reading about. So, okay. So you have this degree, but you also design games. You did a Gettysburg you game. You've done. Well, American, people, you've American, done. the wars of America is one of my areas of specialty. So. All right. So yeah. but how do you, des- how do you choose what you want to design? Um, you know, it's kind of like what I'm interested in at the moment. I mean, it's really, and I also, by the way, just so you know, I, I'm working on at any given time. I mean, I, it's on this computer. I can pull down the list. I have about. 30 games I'm working on. When I say working on, that is a loose word. There's always, I work on them and in something for whatever reason just seems to want to step forward and be, be, be born. And it just does. So right now, um, you know, after that Gettysburg game, uh, you know, everybody said, Hey, I'd love to, why don't you do the rest of the civil war? I was like, you know, actually I might feel, I actually feel like it. I haven't done a civil war in a while yet since for the people. And, uh, back when I did a uh, stonewall, uh, long ago. So, um, yeah, so I'm right now, uh, I'm deep in the battle of Chickamauga, uh, in that, in that campaign and I'll go to Chancellorsville and, you know, I think it's almost, I think it's almost hit its P 500 number. I haven't looked in a while, but it'll, it'll get published. And, uh, I'll do a series of all the, you know, the big battles of the American civil war. I haven't done that in a long time. So yeah. that'll be fun. How okay? So in on that, and we had talked about the difference between tactical, operational, strategic level games, and you have something as simple as a Fort Sumter, and then there's the game that's on the table behind you that's you know a massive hex uh, <laughs> encounter uh, giant back there. How do you how do you determine? Okay, hey, I want to go revisit a Civil War game. What then makes you decide what level? you want to go with that, whether it being strategic, tactical, I, I think, well, well uh, let's go back. So 
it, it, I'll answer the question a little bit differently. You know, why did I do Churchill? Okay. I mean, you sure. played the other day. I mean, you're, you can go watch. Uh, yeah. I, by the way, I thought it was a very well played game. By the way, I have to tell you, I, I, was, I, I was impressed. That, I was impressed. That really. That, I heard the conversation. I've gone. We get critiqued a lot that how because we're trying when we stream games, we're trying to keep them moving. And yeah, yeah. I have a million things that I'm doing while producing, directing the whole nine yards while also playing. That's hard. It's not always the highest level of play. So hearing that from you, Mark, I, uh, I, I, I very much appreciate it, and the fact that. You were you were scoring out the game the last couple of rounds because it yeah. was really tense and really close. That was awesome. That really added yeah. to the uh, to the game. I'm glad. I'm glad it, it helped. Uh, so, I was reading um, a diplomatic history of World War II, and I had I had recently reread um, Churchill's you know uh, history of World you know his memoir of World War II. And I had his voice in my head for some reason. And I said, oh, it would be really cool to do a game with the conferences. And I said, well, what game is that? And I go, oh, there's no game on that. So I, so sometimes it's it's like I want to play a game on something that doesn't exist. So then I go make it. That's kind of how Churchill happened. Uh, so and, – and I will tell you that you know, Churchill got made twice, and as was we the people. Uh, you know, one thing I, a lot of people, they start working on a design – and, you know, it kind of gets done and they go, oh, I'm done. And I remember Churchill was finished. It was a kind of a light World War II game. It had conferences in it, but they were like a, a minor piece of the game. And then and it made its P500 numbers. It, it, they were ready to take it into the art department at GMT. And I called up, you know, Gene Billingsley, who was a good friend. I said, Gene, I, uh, this game is not going to get published. I mean, not in this form. And he said, OK, totally do what you got to do. Because you weren't happy with it? I, I didn't want to play it. <laughs> I mean, and I can't see why if I'm not going to play it. Well, I do want to play it. So, so I, I went back and I actually sat down. You got to be analytical a little bit. Said so like, what do I like about this game? And what came up was I really liked the conference part of it, but the the war part of it, you know, was you know there were a lot there was more interesting ways to do World War II, and they've been already done, or you know, even Accident Allies was more interesting the way I had it. It was simple, but I was like, it was like, but so what? Just because it was simple didn't make it, it was simple minded even. So I, I just totally threw that thing out and started over, but I kept a couple of pieces, which was the conferences, and I built on that. And then the military part became – there's a certain kind of um, computer model that we they used to use in the Pentagon. They're not very good. They, they're called piston models. And you know basically, you know here's the front, and they, go, they kind of go back and forth. You know, I put a lot more force, and I push you this way, and you push me that way, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I – um, I did that, and also I, I wanted to do a World War II game where nobody had to be the Nazis. You know, I'm, I a cool story. I, I was uh, when I was in, you know in corporate life, I ran a big organization, and we had a contract, and I had to go to Moscow to see my client, and I got to go to the uh, the Russian War Museum. And have you ever seen like a, a, any World War II video where the where the uh, type of the Reichstag, the big you know Nazi symbol gets blown off the top of the Reichstag? Right. Yep, it was on the floor in this museum. You know, and, and almost like, I mean, it, it's almost like you could just throw food on. It was like there to be disc, be scorned on the floor. It was really cool. Wow. And I said to myself, you know, in Churchill, I want to drive my tanks onto that Nazi cross. That's what I want to do. The, the object of this game is to drive a tank onto the Nazi uh, swastika. Now, of course, when I put a swastika, we had a swastika on the map in one of the early versions. Everybody flipped the hell out, you know, and I said, 
and said, don't you understand the whole idea is to drive the tank onto the swastika, not that the swastika is being, you know, there's no German player, but. Right. It's not being glorified. No, it's it was, like, it was, that was, what I, that was the, the image. Go. But everybody was so upset. I said, okay, I don't, I don't need to have that become the main narrative of this game. So we changed the art on it. And also, I think it's problem selling it in Europe when you have a swastika on anything. So we, we got rid of the swastika. So now you drive the tank onto the Reichstag. Okay, so that's good. But the point is, is that I wanted nobody to be the Germans. And I didn't want the story to be about the Germans and the Japanese. I wanted the story to be about the Allies winning the war and then what came next. And so it was a different story I wanted to tell. And I think I've been – I'm very – I got to tell you, I, I like playing the game myself. I'd play – if I was – if, I, if we're, this summer we'll play Churchill. We'll get, uh, we'll get a third and we'll play some Churchill. I love playing Churchill. I, I I would love to, and we'll probably have Jess uh, be our third. That would that would be awesome. I sure. would love to get. She looked like she was playing. Pre- she looked like she was doing real well as the Americans. So that'd be good. Uh, she she did very well in that. Uh, so on that note, uh, regarding Churchill, um, I remember back and forgive my my uh, lack of memory of exactly the timing of this, mm-hmm. but I remember there being a bit of a kerfuffle about the uh the end of the game originally <laughs> coming down to a die roll and how people it were was never that true it was even true it's like this no, I, I, I understand yeah, but i'll talk, about, talk sure. about that a little bit because i'm of the mind that if the allies failed to win the war you just lose you failed in the main so that thing. was so here's the so you know, you're a gamer, uh, and apparently quite a good one, so you'll understand this. So one of the problems you have – well, first of all, there's two problems with Churchill from a, just a pure um, game design theory thing. One, it's a three-player game. Three sure. is a very tough game to do because, you know, two-player game is obvious. Four is really two-on-two two ultimately because if three go on one, they, they – you know, uh, you know uh, one of the things that makes um, – was it Maria – an interesting yes, game is it's three yeah, on Maria, one, the, which it, is an interesting balance is the three yeah, player. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. But so, but it, that's a cool, that's, that's a tough challenge just to be quite frank, but sure. three is very hard. So I had, so the way you get around a three player, the three player problem, I'll call it is it has to be, a, you have to have incentives in the game that the two on one changes. So it's not the same two on one. So there's so reasons why on player. Right. the yeah. two on one <laughs> changes, then that's okay. But that's, that's the trick. The, the other thing that is um, an, a natural problem is that you're trying to get people to cooperate like in the real world. So now in the original game, early on, I had it. If you don't be, beat the axis, you lo- we all lose the game. But see, gamers, you know, I don't want to say something mean. So gamers can be very annoying. And so the whole kingmaker problem and the, well, if I can't win, nobody wins, became overwhelming. I mean, you know, people would say, I'm just going to tank the game because I can't win. And that is very unsatisfying. I'm just sorry. Uh, agreed. <laughs> it, it just, it, it pissed me off. And I remember I'm the one who wants to play the game, so I didn't right. want that. Right. So, I, so again, I have a, well, one of my, my master's degree uh, from Georgetown is in national security policy. And there's a lot of, you know, I have, I'm deeply steeped in all of that, you know, the, the, the theory of actual national security policy. And there is a idea uh, called, um, you know, bandwagoning, you know, and and so whenever the, uh, somebody rises in power, you do one of two things. You balance you either. I'm going to. Ba- so if you're going to have a coalition of, of, you know, NATO, I'm going to create the Warsaw Pact. You know, if you're going to be 
you know, if you're going to have, if England, you know, I'm going to create the anti-common term between, you know, the, the Axis powers in World War II, Japan and could never cooperate with Italy and Germany. It just they never could close. It's too far away. They tried. They could have gone through India. You could, you know, they there were some ideas that even they tried to figure out, but they never could work out the geography. The other side of the planet, it's hard to do, uh, even in today's world. Uh, but they created this coalition. There was an anti-coalition to the other side. So th- that's balancing. Bandwagoning says, "Wow, you're really powerful. Hey, can I can I shine your shoes?" <laughs> and would you be nice to me, not kill me? Thank you so very much. You know, that's the bandwagoning piece, right? So uh, using that theory, I said that these these three countries were in alliance. But what's interesting is, and what and this is where I got a lot of criticism, they're saying that's a, everybody kept saying everything was ahistorical because they read a his, they read their history goes back to like high school. Uh, maybe they took a college course in Western Civ. But the problem is, is that and there's books about it now, finally, uh, Churchill had a national agenda that was in many ways, you know, uh, against what uh, the United States, the United States did not want colonies. We were about self-determination. You see that in the global issue, right? So the, so there were major issues that were, and, 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 and Churchill even suggested to Stalin uh, spheres of influence, which was again, very anti-American, but the, the Soviets and the British could, could look at that. I can have colonialism and spheres of influence, I basically get to keep the British Empire. You know, so there was different agendas going on here. And while the Nazis were dangerous, they were able to walk down the path together. But by the end of the war, they're not walking down the path anymore together. By Potsdam, it's the Cold War started at Potsdam. You know, things are falling apart very fast uh, at the end of the war. And so the story I'm, I was trying to educate people to is this is the real history of the how do you think you got to? How do you get from a victorious World War II and right into the Cold War? It was already, it was always going on that direction, and that's what the game is trying to capture. Now, however, it, there was an alliance. So what I'm trying to portray is, gamers are trained. Whoever has the most points wins. That's right. I mean, sure. Name any game other than Churchill, and you probably don't find many. But the idea using international, you know, the theory of international relations says, if you can keep, if you guys can. Achieve your objective of defeating the Axis, you know, both Germany and Japan and, and Italy. You can defeat those guys and you can keep the points close. That means you had to give and take to keep the alliance on the alliance. If you defeat the Axis and somebody is just going for all the points, reality is that person broke the alliance and it's really two against one now from a world power point of view. And so it's not that this person in second place wins. If you read the rule carefully, it doesn't say that. It says if the combined score of second and third is more than first place, the guy who's got the second place wins the game. But if first place could run the score up where he's got 100 points and the combined score of second and third is less than 100, first still wins. You just can't get that many points. Right. But, I mean, it's technically possible, I guess. Right. So that's what the rule really is. It's not the rule that people keep saying it is. That's what the real rule is. But since nobody can ever get that mathematically to happen, and then the one says, if we can't defeat the Axis, it's a die roll. Well, it's not a die roll. What it means is that some, you all broke the – you all basically went your own ways. You played the game like you'd play any worker placement game. Right. Score the points. It's a historic. It's not how it was – It could have come out that way. It's, it's – see, the word ahistoric means – yes, it did not come out that way. I read the book. However, it almost could have. You know, there was – the Germans tried to make a deal with the – Right before the end of the world, the Germans 
you know, Hitler's killed himself. That's the good part of the story. And um, Raider, uh, no, not Raider, um, the head of the German Navy, it'll come to me in a second. The head of the German Navy is now the head of the, of, of the, um, of the German uh, nation. And he comes, he, he sends an overture to the Allies, the Western Allies. He says, look, we'll surrender to you. We'll fight a rear guard action against the Soviets because they're barbarians. And we'll let all our people run to the West. And Eisenhower said, no deal. And they surrendered like within 48 hours, the war's over. So, but what if Eisenhower had said, sure. What, what if Churchill had said, sure. I mean, the whole history of the world changes on that one decision. You know, they could have said, well, the Cold War is going to happen anyway. We might as well start it right here. Um, so it's a, it, it is not the narrative that occurred, but it was a possibility. So it's not a historical. It's just not the path. It's to me, a historical means it never could have happened. Um, Whereas it could have in this case, a path so. not taken Fair is enough. a path not taken. That's a historical path not taken. So in this case, if you, if the acts of the Japanese have not surrendered by the end of the game, what I'm saying is other deals have been cut. Now, if you guys broke the alliance, you're all going for points. You don't care what the hell happens. Then if you can't win, all you have to do is win by 13 points and you win the game. The high score wins if you win by 13. But then people who can't win by 13 go, well, it came down to a dart roll because your strategy failed. And people will say, we played the game 10 times and every single time it came to a dart roll. So the answer is because you can't seem to get out of your box. You lost the game 10 times in a row because you use the same strategy, got the same result, and you know what the definition of stupidity is, don't you? Right. Insanity, right? <laughs> Doing the same well, thing. Well, insanity or stupidity. And... I, was, I think stupidity was uh, the original one by, uh, you know, by Einstein. But anyway, <laughs> regardless, the point is, is that if you keep – so you can win the game by not defeating the Axis, by getting the most points, but you have to win by more than uh, 11 I think it is, right? 11. It's like, I think so. I can, yeah, if yeah. I, I can lose six, you can gain six. Yeah, 13. It's 13. If you can win by more than 13 points and you don't defeat the Axis, you will win the game with the high score. But most people can't do that either. See, so that's so the, so the pain of the die roll is not that you know, the game comes down to a die roll, it's that your strategy failed and that they can't accept. And that's the real story in my mind. Fair point. And I, because I, I'm of the mind, and I, I, and I said this, I think, when I actually taught the game that if, if you've done such a poor job of working together right. to, to where you that can't is even a historical, you can't, yeah, you can't <laughs> focus on the actual main objective, yeah. then you know what? You get, you made your bed. Well, yeah, but you're playing a version of history that. You know, the alliance, what you're playing is a version of, of history where the alliance collapsed earlier than it did. Historically, the, the alliance really collapses around Potsdam. But now you're saying, well, it collapsed, you know, you know, during D-Day, you know, all that. That's that's and I appreciate the fact that you're you're willing to break that down a little bit, because I remember being, you know, just on the outskirts of that and watching all that kerfuffle go down. <laughs> and I was just like, you're missing the point, guys. I yeah. You know, the nice so, part about, you know, the nice part about um, what I've learned as a game designer and it's, it's it seems to be true to my, my most of my games there. And again, I, I don't think much of the BGG rating, but it's the best we have. Uh, most of my games, their rating goes up over time, which is not the norm, because what happens is. You know, I think this. I think I figured out that there's like about ten games produced per day every year. It's it's going up. Uh, I, I I actually think about it. On average, I would say it's probably 
20, actually 20 right, to 25, up. but I, I get your point. It, yes. There's a lot of games being produced. And what happens is, yes. what happens is a game gets out there and a few, you know, uh, you know, from our side, Twilight Struggle was probably one of the few that broke through the noise, you know, and right. became a big deal. Um, and I always like when I do a game, they say, hey, wow, you copied Twilight Struggle. I go, okay. <laughs> But that's okay. I, it's it's the amusement of you know people know what they know. But but the point is that's a phenomenal game. It's it broke through and it it exposed people to this you know kind of quasi conflict kind of strategic games, which I think is great. That's that that opens up the world. Uh, but at the end of the day, people move on. So there's so many games. Like, okay, I hate this game. You know, my nerd rage is I, I nerd rage for you know seven days. I played it a few times. I tweet about it. There's this one guy, uh, I, I won't say his name, but if you go to the Churchill thing, one guy who he he, he hates me or he hates my design. I don't think he hates me. Per- Maybe he hates me personally. I don't know. I know. I don't know him. I mean, I saw him once in a room and he wouldn't even come up and talk to me. So he's kind of a little bit of a coward. But but regardless, he he everything I do, he basically says it's a piece of crap, which I think is fine because every time he does it, I win the game of the year. And when Pericles came out, he didn't say anything and I only got nominated. I felt, I, I wrote him, I said, <laughs> why you didn't trash me? I could have won. It's your fault. <laughs> no, no, but you see, I'm going to tell you something funny. I, I learned, you want me to talk about uh, nerd rage in a second, but the point was, is he's written more words about how bad Churchill is than everybody who wrote comments put together. And it's got over 1100 comments. I mean, he literally, if you go there, you can find his, you'll find out who it is because he's literally written I mean, I think he's written at least 6,000 words. I mean, that's a lot of words for BGG commentary. Um, but the game got game of the year, so I go, okay, I'm good. Now, why – I actually think that people get upset when you – so you say you get upset when you get criticized, right? See, I sure, think – I mean, I think, wait, natural, natural reaction. I, I have a new no. way of looking at this. Okay, realize, me, Mark. So you got this internet. Billions of people literally are every second tweeting, Instagramming you know, taking picture of the, you know, whatever, sending it around the world and getting caught and doing all this crazy thing. It's all this noise, right? But if somebody starts screaming and yelling, it actually brings people, they go, what's going on over there? So the only way you get attention is if like there's a big burst up. So every time a guy, this guy would start a big, you know, craziness going, the nerd rage around Churchill helped the game because people would, it got noticed amongst all, you know, 10 games a day, 20 games a day, right? Here's this one little game coming out. Why should I look at it? Everybody's screaming and yelling. Hey, it's like watching a car accident. You know, you want to any publicity is good publicity, right? It's rubbernecking. I think I call it internet rubbernecking and internet rubbernecking is some of the best uh, promotion I've ever seen. I've I've actually done a lot of work on, you know, thinking about this. I think that's the way it works. So I'm happy when people get all upset about me. So you, you know, you got nominated. I think, uh, did you win? Uh, No, no, we took second runner up Uh, this year. I, I voted for you, by the way. Thank you, Mark. Uh, that means welcome. a lot. I appreciate but, uh, it. But my good friend Jeff Engelstein did win, who's a local uh, biologist. And, so, and, and so I, was, I, I voted for both of you. I want to be clear. Absolutely I warranted. No, you're, I, I think uh, yeah. I, I, I've been a fan of Ludology. I yeah. think it's a great show. I think they've done yeah. wonderful things over there. But, you know, I, I, give you, I give you a lot of credit. I mean, you're – and what Ludology is doing, but what you're doing with videos, is that, you know, you're creating a new profession, really. You know, game review, game, you know – journalist let's call you a, i think you're a game journalist that's what i'm going to call you from now on i'll, I'll accept that thank yeah, you All but right. i think game journalism is just starting you're you're, you're you may be come you'll they'll look back someday goes hey there was this guy edward euler he was one of the first you know 
you're laughing, but it's this is how the world moves now these days, you know. And I, I'm I'm excited to kind of think about it, but you know. I'll, I'll design them, and you know, guys like you will uh, talk about them. A hundred percent. I'm on board. Let's 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 do this. I, I I like how this this uh shapes up. All right. So getting back, circling back to design, this is my absolute favorite question to ask designers, okay. bar none, and that is, how do you know when a game is done? How do you finally <laughs> say, okay, enough tinkering. I can tinker with this thing until the cows come home put it out the door, I'm done with it. So remember earlier on, I said I was raised by two great, um, you know, icons of the hobby, you know, Jim Dunnigan and Redmond Simonson. And Jim Dunnigan once, you know, I I might have, I don't know how it came up, but what he said to me is, no game is ever finished, they just get published. And so at some point, you sort of say, you know, I think this one's ready for prime time. Uh, And the beautiful thing about a game, if it's successful, is you, you sometimes get a, a second kick at the can. I try not to do that too much, but but you know, like when Empire of the Sun came out in two thousand five, I was very happy with the game. Um, you know, once and once the they had about two or three you know major crazy detractors got people people walked away and then people started playing it and so it's rating so it started it used to have a rating like about I don't know seven point three or something now it's like an eight point one. Now, I'm not saying that the BGG rating, but people are playing it and they appreciate it now more than they did back in 2005. So it's held up 14 years later. You know, uh, I always like to say for the people is now one score and one, one year old. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's 21 years. So when a game gets played and then because of the playing gets republished, you know, you're going to, you know, weird situations come up. You know, there's errata. There's. And then, so with, with Empire of the Sun specifically, there was, you know, the game had been out 2005, and I guess this is around, I don't know, let's say it's about 2008, about 2010, jeans, they sold out, and now they're going to put it up the P500 again. So I started thinking about it, and I said, okay, and I've been playing it a lot, so I knew the game well, still play it. And there were about, let's call it a dozen cards that just didn't do what I wanted them to do the first time out. You know, they just... You know, they got, it didn't hurt the game, but there was 12 cards that I said, you know, could this whole, huh? That you could improve upon. Yeah. And also make them more interesting and power them up. And I took a bunch of things that were the main idea of the card and made it a bonus. So the bonus wasn't valuable enough to Pete, you know, it goes that to that. Remember we talked about the profit loss, um, you know, gain, gain loss mechanic that people naturally do in their heads. And, after watching people play it for at that point five six years, I had understood the and I've been playing with a lot of people, so I was getting a lot of you know really real time feedback. I could see how they were valuing things, and it wasn't what I intended, but that's cool. That's you know again the the the, the gamers are smarter than I am, so I'm taking their feedback. And so these twelve cards, I said, okay, how do I based on how they're playing it, what's the better way to do this? So I took a bunch of interesting ideas and made them bonuses and, and I made the card more interesting and great. It was, and so I got that kick of the can and then the, this reprint is just a reprint. Although there's a, this solitaire thing is uh, that Erasmus solitaire system almost killed me. I actually designed it up here several, some, you know, a long time ago, back 2010, 2011, I did the first version of it up here that I improved on it, but I'm done with that. You know, <laughs> It's, it's as good as it's going to get. I, what, I'm not changing. What, make, what it. it's makes that so hard? Well, you're creating um, AI 
uh, well, we can talk about this. So, so bots, you know, those bots, right? You mm-hmm. know, play at solitaire. And there's a group of solitaire players who mostly just play solitaire. They tell you that I, I'm, I only want a game if it's solitaire. So, uh, and I've seen that, you know, especially going to do a multiplayer game like Pericles is a good example. You know, I, I'm, I love the game, but it's going to be hard for people to get four people to the table all the time. Right. That, and there's a lot of four player games out there. So if you're going to if you're going to drop I don't know what that was it go for eighty bucks I don't know whatever it is it's it's not it's not chump change you know it's real money and if you're going to lay down your hard work you know hard earned capital to buy this game you'd like to believe that you're going to get to use it and so sure. the solitaire is really the thing that I think puts people some guys they say okay I can play the game by myself I can enjoy it you know that's cool so I feel solitaire is important from a you know value to the you know value to the gamer proposition so i I'm, I'm all in but when you have a hand of cards and a map you know so just to give you an example you know remember i talked about uh, card mathematics right 84 cards which is the n choose k you know n factorial over k factorial times n minus k factorial equation that you learned when you were in high school or maybe college i mean depending on where you were um you will find that there are 4.529 billion unique seven card hands out of 84 cards. That's a lot of cards. I mean, you're not going to play that in your hand in your life, right? Right. And uh, like Jeff Engelstein says, uh, uh, deck of 40, 52, 52 cards, cards, you know, for as many hands of poker as a former professional poker player, there you go. as many hands of poker that exist, there's never been the same setup in the history of man, which is mind boggling to me. Yeah. How so 84 is, so think about it. 84 is more than 52, right? So it's not going to happen. Sure. Right. And, and what, and actually with that calculation that Jeff did, that's just, that's just in factorial. It's just saying that, um, the, the exact ordering of the deck is going to be different. Right. Which yeah. even that which is, is yeah, well, staggering a big deal. to me. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a staggering mathematic when you start to think about it. So, and then you have two, remember there's two 84 card decks. And so when you actually do that, now you're into the trillions of combinations. Wait, we're not done. There's a map in pieces. So I don't even know what the, the number is, but there was a guy doing um, some using logarithms, you know, using the logarithm to sort of say, you know, how many factorial is this thing? And I, I think it's somewhere around, we're getting close to the number of molecules in the universe. Okay. So now we're, it's a big number, right? It's a big goddamn number. So, so when you now have to do an AI that has to account for that universe of numbers, it's hard. Sure. Uh, and so you've got to figure out card combinations in a, and again, it, it, it'll never be as flexible as a human because it's not computer code. We, we throw dice every so often just to give it a little bit of variability. But the answer is, is that writing the logic for the cards, the card play, the board situation, how you put forces together and all that is a lot. Now, it's working pretty well. I mean, people, the guys from uh, Rally in the Valley uh, played Pericles. And I said, how did it go? He said, well, we played, we played and you know, uh, the two of us, we, we played with the bots. I said, I said, well, you know, when you're playing with the bots, you know, you're playing against me. And then so the, he wrote back, he goes, you won. <laughs> <laughs> that <cracked me> up. <laughs> well done, Mark. Well no, done. So, you know, if I, I think, okay, that's a victory. I mean, if the bot can win on the, you know, that's fine. It won't, you know, eventually you'll get better. But the point is, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. It's almost Do as much work as you enjoy that aspect of it? I do. I do. It's it's a very deep um, mental problem to sort through. So I do enjoy it, but it takes up a lot of bandwidth. Like I can't think about much else. So I, you know, I got to, you know, so I, 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 
I'm going to take a I, – I now – like, in fact, what's interesting, I don't know if you saw the uh, GMT just tweeted out. I did – back in 19 – oh, God, when did I do that game? Somewhere in the 90s, I did a game called Peloponnesian War, which was mm-hmm. before Pericles. I, I have Solitary a copy game. of it in the library. Thank you very much. Oh, good. Well, thank you. Well, anyway, there's a new edition, and it's not much different. I mean, you know, I, I added more scenarios. There's this crazy scenario I created for it uh, called The Fall of Sparta, which I don't think anybody's ever done before. It's, a good, it's an interesting piece of history, and it's a crazy two-player scenario. But the solitaire piece, um, I got around the bot problem by making you play against yourself. So yeah, right. You play both sides of it, right? Yeah. Ultimately, yeah. You back and forth. Right. And so you get to live the Greek tra- – see, there you're not trying to be Athens or Sparta. You're trying to live the Greek tragedy. That was the narrative I wanted. You had to live and you're, you're actually going to see it on the show at some point. Oh, so good. you're going to cool. watch me play uh, play that at some point, definitely. Okay. So. Oh, excellent. And well, we'll I, make sure you know what? Gets you I, I, well, you'll have to get the new copy. You know, it's, got, it's got pretty art. Well, I, I, I actually was thinking about doing both, like doing like one the month ahead of its release, playing the old version, <laughs> okay, and then cool. the following well, month, the new version. I'll, I'll tune in for that for sure. All right. All right. Sounds good. Uh, so what now you said you at any given time you have roughly, give or take, uh, 30 ideas or 20. 30 designs, 20, 30 out there cooking. Yeah, cooking. Um, Throw a bone. What do you got? Like, what's, 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 uh, so, um, well, obviously, Rebel Fury is the one that's moving forward just because, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying, uh, you know, rereading about all my Civil War stuff. So, um, so right now I'm in Chickamauga and, um, I, this is like my, your, your, um, read, um, Fahrenheit 451. Yes. Okay. So this is, I'm going to pick up this thing for this. This is the secret library that the that they don't know about that they'll burn if they find it. <laughs> so um, there is more books over here. And there and there's that giant war game that I was talking about. What what game is that? That's oh, on the that's, table behind you. It's a, it's an old game called Manassas. Hang on, we we'll give people a better view of it. There you go. So that's Manassas. That's the first the battle. Uh, hang on, I gotta figure out how this. That works. That works. There we go. I, it, it's funny. The camera. Maybe it's just not. It's not the way I think it should be. There we go. So you can see uh, that's the first Battle of Manassas. You're looking at it, and it's a game that was done by a guy named uh, Rick Britton. I haven't seen Rick in a long time, but an old friend. And um, it's uh, it's really cool, uh, the visuals on it. I, it's just one of those games. That, it's got a very straightforward system. I mean, most people think it's a complicated game, but it's really – it's not. I mean, it's not to my mind. Um, but it really has – it has calligraphy counters. You know, it's like it just looks – like it came out of the 19th century and it just looks all aw- you can see it. It just looks awesome. You know, the maps and the counters and just the artwork just really works. It gives an incredible feel for the uh, battle. Uh, but you know, modern games will go crazy. Can I see over this hill? You know, the line of sight rules would drive anybody up the wall. I just don't worry about it too much. You know, I, I can figure it out pretty quick, but some people are very um, linear. So they get very upset if they don't play it exactly right. I'd be like, Hey, come on. It's a battle. Can, can the artillery see him? Yeah, it looks like it. Pull the lanyard. Shoot him. <laughs> <laughs> Roll the dice, man. Don't worry about it. I, yeah. I, I think I'm glad to hear you say stuff like this. Oh, um, yeah. Because obviously people are going to be how people are going to be. But I think hearing you say that, I think that might help some people relax maybe about yeah, some of it, this stuff. You know, I, I've been every so often I'm playing a game and, you know, and these are people who I won't be playing with another time, but they get upset and I go, look, it's a game. 
I, on that note, I, I, we get we get comments on some of the video because obviously we play some bigger games now. Obviously, yeah. we're not playing some of the giant war games I, necessarily. Well, out I don't there. even play. I gotta be honest with you those that those days are done. I mean, it, we, we there's a, you know what it is, and and again, it it comes down. Times have changed. I mean, that's just the reality of it. Um, when I did Pacific War in 1985. You know, it's it, it has a lot of pieces, but it's really an operation level game. But people wanted to play the war, but they were in high school. So, you know, the fact that they would put it up on their mother's dining room table and play for six months didn't bother anybody's head. You know, you get a you get a two year old in the house. You ain't playing nothing for six months. Okay? Right. Yeah. Or you if you have a cat. Yes. Right. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Cats. Yeah. Cats are actually um, are the demons of war game. You know, see, they, they actually they actually know what's going on. They go, you know what? You look like you're having fun, and I need to mess this up. Yes. Yeah, is, yeah. No, the cats are – dogs are good. I, I'm a dog person. I don't dislike I am cats. I as well. But, am cats, as well. but cats, cats are evil when it comes to games. I mean, I've seen more guys go, oh, I was playing the game until the cat wrecked. I've never seen – never heard of a dog wrecking a game ever. <laughs> but cats all the time. So clearly, if you're a war gamer and you have a cat, get a lock on the door. Right. <laughs> That's all I can tell you. Um, but, um, you know, but – but I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to sit down and play a game for eighty hours anymore. I mean, it's not that I don't like games. I just, you know, at some point I, I want to move on. You know, I just want to go right. to something else. So I, I'm willing to, I'm willing to play a game for you know, ten hours, maybe over a couple of days. But if, but I can't get it done in two days. It's gonna be, it's coming off the table at that point, no matter what. And I like finishing games, so I, you know, I. I kind of accommodate that in the in my designs these days, so it's a time issue really more than anything else. Complexity doesn't, you know, complexity is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, uh, you know, I I find that you know some people want like look at Fort Fort Sumter is a good example. There's like one procedure and a and a track, and that's it. And right. you can play the game in twenty minutes, so that's sure. why. Uh, Pericles has six very simple mechanics. Uh, Churchill, you, I was very happy to hear you say that Churchill has maybe there's five mechanics in the game, right? You got to do the fronts and you got the you know the reserve thing, right? You got all that stuff, which can get, you know, it's not hard, but it's just like, you know, you got to do it. And then you got the playing the cards for the issues, you know, so it's like about four distinct mechanics in the game. Uh, for some people, that's like, oh my God, you know, well, there are a lot of other games, thank God. You don't have to hurt yourself. Exactly. Yeah, there, there's yeah, games there's, for there's everybody. Ten, but mechanically, Churchill is not terribly difficult. It's really Nothing not. Hard. It's very procedural. Very Follow procedural. Procedure, and you're good. Yeah, yep. and that's that's the thing. So I, I try to make sure that – one of the things I try to do is I don't want any more complexity in a game that I can get on more or less a fold-out. If I can get all the rules on you know the, a four-page fold-out with all the tables and whatever – and if I want to add something else to the game, I have to take something out. If I can't get it on those four pages, I'm going to take something off because then it's too complex. Even for me, by the way, you know, not that I can't remember. It's just like if I keep. I also have another thing when I'm designing a game. If I forget the rule, uh, it's coming out because if I can't remember, why should you remember? And again, I, I take this attitude that you know we're all in the same world here, so I gotta, yeah, I gotta accommodate that. I I appreciate the fact that you think about it that way, and, and like you said, that you you want to be able to enjoy your own games as well. And if yeah. you can't enjoy it, then why the hell should anybody else enjoy what you're not enjoying? Right? Exactly. 
That makes sense. So somebody had asked me, uh, I had a, a small thread over in the guild on BGG asking okay. uh, for questions. And somebody asked, I know you said that you don't set out uh, planning on doing like a series of games. Like, you know, you have Churchill, Pericles, mm-hmm. etc. Any Any thoughts on revisiting that? That's system if you will well so you'll so again so the idea is i will i will definitely do more of that paul mill you know politics and military thing um pericles is about as complicated i i really i had to really like pericles i mean it's you know it's the game i always wanted to do on the peloponnesian you know when i did the, the peloponnesian war that you have in your library i I had a little bit of the, the, the leader had a little bit of effect on the strategy matrix, right? You know, that there was that, but there was really, and then there's the events, but there's really no politics and it. it was just a military story. But what I couldn't, I hadn't, couldn't figure out then was how to, you know, if you read Thucydides, which I, I think everybody should, you know, I know my wife would sit here going, Oh God, but uh, I made her read it. Um, but what, what you learn is it, it, it's the discussion, it's the debate and the discussion, which is fascinating to me. You know, they're, they're arguing about strategy. You know, they're sitting there going, well, we should go attack Sicily. And I go, that's not really a good idea. No, no, it's really a good idea. No, no, it's not a good idea. Well, that's, that's, that, there's the game, right? You know, like, well, are we going to Sicily or not is the game. And, and so, yeah, that's what I wanted to get across in Pericles. So then you can really live out the whole narrative of that war. But without the politics, you're missing, you know, at least half the story. Churchill is also a difference. So I'll do another, and and I'm I'm pretty sure it's going to be on the American. Uh, if I'm going to write a book, which I'm starting to think seriously about, you know, there is no actual book because I've been looking on what the Continental Congress did to win the American Revolution. What do you we mean? All, well, we all know what George Washington did, right? Right. Well, what did the Congress do? They gave him money. They gave they gave him a hard time. What did they do? Do you know what they did? I've actually read the actual congressional hearings. It's it's been published. They don't they didn't keep very good minutes, by the way. They only tell you what they resolved. But who were on the committees? What did the committees do? How did that affect what Washington did? Was Washington just kind of running the war, and they were just kind of sitting there yelling with each other? And the answer is that's a really good question. And there's no book on it. And so I'm, I believe I'm going to revisit, I'm going to, tr- I'm thinking about writing this book and I've, by the way, I've been to rare book fairs. I've been to Columbia university and different universities. I've talked to professors and, they, and when I asked the question, they go, Oh yeah, there really is no book on that. So there's a topic there's no book on. So now I'm going, okay, well maybe that now this could be something worth writing about, but I can see myself then, of course, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to do a game on it. Uh, the continental Congress at war. And obviously the, 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 the Churchill concept is where I would go with that. I, I think that would be interesting because I'll be honest, I'm ignorant on that. I have no idea. To I wasn't until I started reading about it. I was like, I asked the question and then I wanted to go find a book and I just couldn't. Uh, a lot of it, I'm going to have to go to like, you know, papers and letters. I mean, that's how they, because see, they didn't write, see, right now there's a, I mean, anybody's watching, you know, there's a lot, let's say everything that gets said in Congress these days goes into the congressional minutes. It's online. You can read every single word about every, what everybody said everywhere in the Congress. In that period of time, that wasn't the case. So what they, so we know what they resolved. We resolved to do the following, but, ha- but the conversation that got up to the resolution is not recorded in most cases. So you'd have to get somebody's letter to somebody say, hey, we just did this thing and this is what we were yelling about. I don't even know what the issues were anymore. So that, that sounds like a 
immense amount of legwork that's going well, to go into it. And, and I am running into this, you know, how many, how many, how many miles are there on this runway of life for me right now? I don't know. <laughs> but is that, know. is that, would that, I'm not going to say that, is that a grail for you, but is that something that you're passionate about that you're, I, I'm getting there. I'm, I'm working. I'm, I'm, I am, I'm thinking about it, but thinking about it and doing it are two different things. <laughs> You know, I remember when I went to grad school, I was married. I was, remember, I got my graduate degree when I was uh, 42. I had two kids. My kids came to my graduation. You know what? I'll tell you a funny story. Do you have any kids? Uh, well, my girlfriend does. So, yes, sort okay. of. Well, if, you're, if somebody's looking up to you, then that's close enough. All right. Uh, there you go. All right. Uh, so, I'm in grad school. And what do parents say to their kids? I go, you need to get A's. You need to get good grades. But now I'm in school also. So I I will tell you, honestly, I actually graduated with a high academic honors. You know, I got like, they didn't have someone come a lot in, in, in this particular school, but I got the highest grade you could get in graduate school. You know why I did that? Because they were looking at my report card. <laughs> they go, Daddy, what'd you get? did you get all A's, Daddy? I go, Yes, I did. How about you? <laughs> but if I couldn't say that, I couldn't walk the talk. You know, see, That's you got to walk. Awesome. You got to walk the talk. So I got, I, I got a, I, I basically graduated with high academic honors because my son and my daughter uh, would have, I would have no credibility with my kids if I didn't. That is amazing. That that's good motivation right there. It was it? all the mo- it's all the motivation I needed. But that's but that was my motivation. It was I, nobody else cared. You know, I just had to get a degree. <laughs> That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Cause you don't ever, like, I don't ever, I can never remember, like I have a number of doctors like PhDs and everything in our game group here. Uh Never once has anyone ever asked, Hey, what were your grades in college? They just said, do you have the degree? That's all that matters. That's all that matters. But my kids, it mattered to that conversation. So yeah. So I won that argument. Not that it did much good, but I did win the argument. <laughs> well, if you're going to do it, do as I say and as I do, I guess. Yeah, well, right? I was what I had. You know, it's all about credibility and authenticity sometimes. You, you know, if you're going to walk, you know, if you're going to say stuff like that, either stop saying it or you better do it. That's yeah. awesome. Uh, all right. One last uh, design question, and then we'll sure. wrap things up, at least sure. for this one, because I imagine you and I are going to talk more again sure. in the future. You and I are good friends. Uh, we'll, we'll play war games together. Uh, the, I, dude, you have no idea how excited about this I am now. I, how, what's the, how are things different when Mark Herman designs a game and when Mark Herman designs a game with someone like Jeff Engelstein or Vocal Runke or and you collaborate? How does that process change for you? Um, that's an excellent question. Um, I guess, you know, the, the most important thing is, um, you have to be, you have to like the person you're going to co-design with. So I'm to like Jeff and Volko very much. Uh, I mean, I, I, although I don't give Jeff as much shit, but I give Volko about as much as I can. Uh, and he gives me, cause he starts, I mean, he started it. <laughs> if you ever want to see how it started, go watch the Byron the Lake tutorial that he and I, I shot with him and you'll get it. Okay. But we have a great, I love Volko. And, um, so the, the key part is you have to, you have to pick your, you can't have it all your own way. Right. So you have to be listen. You have to listen more than you talk. And you have to respect that, you know, if, you know, if we both chose each other to work together, we, we both respect each other, but you have to show that respect at all times. And so that's not hard when, you know, you got talented people that are very nice. So that's not hard, but you have to be mindful of that. 
And in fact, I'm going to do a game with Harold Buchanan for the same reasons. But we're not going to say what that's about. That's me. That's too weird. Even to, <laughs> that's too crazy to even talk about. But it's going to be fun. Okay. It's going to be fun. I, I, uh, I'm a. I'm, I'm a. We're still getting to know each other, Mark. So I'm yeah. not going to press too much no, okay. yet. But no, we got a ways to go here. When, okay. Down the road, we'll we'll we'll, we'll reveal it to you. You can one, I'll reveal it to. Uh, <laughs> but um, so, and I think that if you you take it on that way, things get better. So when I like good example, uh, Jeff and I are doing. You know, Versailles is actually an art now. Um, and and the way that game came about was I was in a there's a, a game store in New York called the Complete Strategist that you know my best friend uh, Danny Kilbert and I have known each other for. I don't know, 40 years. Uh, I was in the store and Pericles had come out and I see this guy walking out, you know, going to the cash register with Pericles. So I go, thank you very much for buying my game. And I look up and I, I, I happen to know what he looks like. I, I met him before. I, I go, Jeff, <laughs> it was Jeff Engelstein. So we start talking. He's a very nice guy. And he says to me, I, I hear you're doing a Versailles game. So am I. Maybe we should just do it together. So that was the whole conversation about doing Versailles together. I mean, literally by accident, walking into him in the store. Uh, think about the timing of that because he lives in Jersey. Serendipity, total yeah. serendipity. So it was meant to be, right? You know, that's how I look at these things. There's no coincidence in the universe. It just it, it mocks us all. So the die the die roll came up, box cars, and we now we're doing this game. And he had already done a whole lot of work on the issues, and um, and I had had this um, card bidding mechanic. And that I was working on and we put those two things together and then I did this personality, you know, he had a deck of personality. I, I, you know, so I did the personality deck, he had the issues. Then the thing that was never working was this uprising thing. And we did that about, that was the one thing we probably redid about 20 times, but we liked the way we have it now. And on that note, did you, so you had certain roles here within designing the game then from what I'm hearing. No, it, it kind of was natural. There was no like we didn't sit down and say, "Okay, you're going to do this. I'm going to do that." We just started doing stuff, and and whatever needed doing got done. And Jeff is also a lot better with graphics than I am. So you know, every time something graphic had to happen, and I had this really amazing guy named Francisco Calmanare. So I brought Francisco in to do the cards. You know, redo the cards, and you know, and then uh, Jeff was kept redoing the board. He did a great job. Jeff really designed the board. You know, so. Um, you know, we both wrote the rules, you know, multi, I'll, I would say I'll take this version of the rules and, you know, and then he write the next version of the rules. So we kept working on that stuff. And, you know, and eventually I think when we got to the 20th uprising uh, mechanic, which was the only thing that we kept messing around with, I finally said, this is, you know, I did the Dunnigan thing. I said, it's going, we're done. And then he, and then about a week later, you know, I was just thinking, no, no, there's no more thinking about this. It's going to get published now. <laughs> this is done. And I, and I told him, and I'll take it through production. I said, you know, you, you, you're a busy guy. I'll, you know, you've got a company. I'm, so I'm taking it through production now. Okay. And yeah. how, how do, is it the same process then uh, working with uh, vocal? Uh, 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 so vocal was, than, uh, you know, more trash. So fire in the lake. Well, the trash talking part, you know, came later. But what <laughs> what happened was um, Gene Billingsley is a big fan of putting together. Uh, Gene Billingsley has a superpower. It's putting together teams of people that you wouldn't figure out putting together. So Volko uh, and I both live in Washington, and Gene wanted a Vietnam game. And I had been working on one for a long time and I had a basic, some basic design, but I wasn't moving forward because I was working. I mean, I had, I mean, believe it or not, at one time I had 6,000 people working for me. So I was busy. Uh, wow. And yeah, it was a big, it was, I ran a big business and I had a lot, you know, so my, my life was, and I, these two nice kids, I really, well, they're parents now, but 
you know, I had these wonderful children and I actually like my wife. And so, you know, life was complicated and, and Gene wanted this Vietnam game. So he, he enlisted Volko. So Volko started coming over to my house. He lived, we don't live that far from each other back in those days. And I told him about my idea for this game, but the controversial part of my design was that the, uh, the VC and the NBA were not the same player, that it was a four player game. Um, and, I talked about you know the basic area mechanics and but then I got very busy and nothing happened and then somewhere about a year later or so Volko did Indian Abyss which is the first coin yep game. yep and then um, Gene moaned at both he and Volko and I about what about that Vietnam game so I said okay he said you should look at this coin system I really like it so I looked at the coin system and I realized that it was basically accommodated my original design. I mean, maybe some of the, those ideas even got into Andy and Abyss. I don't know. But regardless of how that all happened, it was a natural fit. And then we started doing the game together. And it came together pretty fast. I did uh, – Volko did the map one day. I wrote 130 events. And uh, <laughs> we had a coin game. Wow. That's, that's interesting. And the Vietnam War has a special place in my heart. If you want to phrase yeah. it that way, I guess. Yeah. Well, you're, dad, yeah, that's what, it's, it's, it's a historical interest of yours. Right. Yeah. There you go. Because my dad served in sure. that and he was a uh, twin 50 gunner on a PBR boat down on the Mekong. Oh, yeah. And, oh, uh, yeah. 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 Well, I had. So you have to understand. So I. So people will say to me, well, you were in Vietnam. And the answer is, believe it or not, I'm actually too young. <laughs> they actually stopped the war before I got. I, as I turned 18, they signed the peace accord. So, I mean. There was no Vietnam War to go to. Right. Not that I'm, not that I'm upset about that, um, but uh, but I but I remember I told you I had a lot of people, but I had a ton of ex-military people. So there are cards. I all my all the people they used to. So we'd go on these business trips, and you know you're sitting with like five Vietnam vets, and you know with somehow alcohol, the stories start happening. So I've Weird heard how that works. I, I've heard like an, and and also because I worked in the Pentagon. I knew, like Bob Comer, who's a very famous person. I mean, I knew these people. I mean, I met them. General Depew. I mean, I, I I physically interacted with these folks. You know, they were older gentlemen at the time. I was, by the way, I, I was very fortunate in my life. I had when I was in um, game design, of course, Dunnigan and Red and Simonson mentored me. But when I was in the Pentagon, this guy named Andy Marshall just passed away at ninety-seven was my main mentor. And anytime he felt I needed something, I, I wrote this uh, mathematical construct about command control and information once and he said to me you need to go see dr rona so i said okay i'll go see dr rona so i get an address and i realize i'm going to the new executive office building and it turns out that dr rona is the deputy science advisor to president reagan i mean so this is like so i i i, I tell dr rona I show dr rona, this is a guy with two phds in physics so i show my math and he looks at it and he goes he goes, this is, this is really interesting stuff, but your, your mind is not disciplined. We need to fix that. So for two years, I had him basically beat the, the heck out of me, but it made me a much better, I mean, it really, you know, I improved. <laughs> Let me put it this way. You know, you take, you heat up the steel and you put it in water, it tempers it. So, you know, Dr. Rona, then I work with a guy named Admiral Sobrowski, who is one of the, you know, the leading lights of the Navy also uh, sadly passed away. And I wrote a, a theory of network centric warfare and I, he and I more or less worked on that. I wrote a paper and he liked it and we, he renamed it and you know, the whole, basically how the Pentagon ran its operations on network centric warfare and how all this stuff, you know, this crazy stuff that we did in the Gulf war and everything else works all comes from that work. So 
I was, I mean, I've been benefited by these amazing people. So there's the fire in the lake has got, there's a card, there's an SR 71 card, uh, it says captain Buck Adams. I mean, if you're, you're right behind you, but if you look at that card, general Adams and I were, are good friends. I mean, that's, he, that's and he's told me, he told me that SR 71 is, is, that's one of the stories he told me. That's, you know, he was flying over Vietnam and, you know, taking pictures on, he, he flew over Vietnam, North Vietnam, taking pictures on the SR 71, turned it around, which meant he turned around over Africa and came back. Cause remember it's, it's going really fast. Yeah, uh, it, it takes like part of the planet to turn it around. That's our way back. Was the reason I wanted to get into aviation to begin with because I think it's still to this date the coolest aircraft ever made. You, you're, you're exactly right. In fact, I have a model of it over here that he, that Buck gave me. And on the way back over to Vietnam, Buck tells me that he sees two SA twos are fired at him from Vietnam. So what does he do? He outruns them. Right. Yeah. But it however, has no in the outrunning of them. And again, I'm not going to go into deep, but the the SR-71 could get a could get like ahead of its headlights. It was going too fast; it was going to melt because he was outrunning. So he actually had to recover the plane. He almost got killed. The missiles wouldn't have hit him, but the plane almost you know fell apart, you know, because he was going so fast. And he slowed. But anyway, his plane is in the um, the you know is in the Smithsonian out the one that's out in Dulles Airport. It wow. says his name around the side of it. So I mean. I've had him come to speak. I've had various events where I brought him to talk, and he tells stories that people just love that. It's great stuff, mate. That's, so, that's awesome. And that, the, the LERP, the LERP one is a guy named Bob Stats, uh, Captain Bob Stats. Um, and there's one from a guy named uh, Colonel uh, Captain Ray Hamey, and goes on and on. I mean, all their stories are in those cards. So, you know, it was really kind of cool that I've been studying it, but I also, it's really got a lot of, um, you know, uh, Verbal history is in those cards. And uh, on the, the LERPs, uh, my dad would go and drop them off and pick them up. For, oh, a helicopter pilot. Uh, oh, no, uh, on the PBRs. They would oh, also, they, they, they would they would do insertion and extraction of them. And he, uh, he, he would usually only tell me some of these stories when he was... Um, when he was feeling no pain, let's put it that way. In the alcohol, alcohol is a great, uh, a great loosener of lips. Yes, yes, there story. is that. So uh, may yeah, yeah. he rest in peace. But well, yeah, that's uh, that's yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's why I'm always fascinated about Vietnam and everything. And watching the uh, uh, the series that was on Ken Burns. Oh yeah, yes, that was amazing. Well, well, there, know, there was I'll a whole lot of stuff that I had no idea about about the conflict and the politics and all of that. Well, I'm, I'm, it's fascinating you bring that. I just want to. We were talking about CDGs much earlier, and I'll tell you that um, one. So when I saw the, um, you know, when you talk about the, uh, you know, the CDG, one of the things that I was inspired by was Ken Burns. You know, that American Civil War one, which is you know, a very famous one. So the way he tells the story, it's a series of like, you know, it's like a two or three minute segment on some piece of the war that right. leads into another piece of the war. Well, think about the playing of the card as one of those segments in the story. And that's really what I was going for, is that I the card is telling the narrative like a two or three minute Ken Burns segment of the war. So when you play a card in Empire of the Sun, so Ken Burns did the American Civil War, I did For the People. Then I did um, Empire of the Sun, and he did the thing called the Pacific. And then, of course, I did Fire the Lake, and then later on he did – well, I'm not saying we, we're not – yeah, but I follow. <laughs> we're following, we're doing the same. We're doing the same stories, right? So you know, he's telling you about Kent State, but I got a card for it. You know, so that card telling that piece of that story, or you know, you know, all those things. So that's how that's, I, that's, that's how I think about cards. Really interesting way to think about it, and it might change the way 
that I think about when I'm playing these games now that you mentioned that. I think that's a really, really eye-opening way to think about it. And it's funny how what you just said changes nothing. Like it's yeah. it's still playing the card, acting out what you know, doing the event, whatever. But the thinking about it from that standpoint. I think that actually will help with the engagement or the, you know, following along with that narrative and how that, how to frame that in your head when you're playing these games. That's fascinating. That's, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. That's how I tend to think about it when I'm designing them is, you know, what, how does this story lay out as if it makes sense? That's always the most important part that it makes sense. So again, you know, like I said, uh, I, I really do enjoy, and Ken Burns, I mean, I, if you said to me, like, what's the one person you'd want to have lunch with? I, Ken Burns would be the top of the list. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, Mark, because the way I the way I wrap up all my conversations with Heavy Cardboard, we got six questions you and I are going to go sure. over. Sure, six questions. Okay, well, lightning you round. Na- you already nailed one of them, so there's oh, okay. that. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. So a series of six fun yet thoughtful questions have to sure. be quick fire off the top of your head. You ready? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Number one, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you are? Uh, 90. <laughs> Not usually the direction that goes, but okay. Why, why, uh, why so uh, elderly well, statesman? Well, I'm, I'm 65 now, so the, the, that old stuff, you know, that's like, that's in the rearview mirror, man. I'm looking forward, not looking back. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, I'll, tell you a funny, I'll tell you a quick thing, though. So my, my wife's grandmother lived to be 106 wow. and a half. And, but, you know, she, but when they used to go want to go out, I would watch her. You know, I'd stay with her. And one day she goes to me and she goes, well, she, she, she spoke with a very heavy, you know, English, Italian accent. She goes, um, she called me Marco. She goes, Marco, I'm very scared. I go, what's well, Nina, why are you scared? She goes, I'm 100. How long do you think you go? <laughs> I go... I never thought of it that way, but you know, Hey, I can't really argue with that. Yeah. No. It's been a hell of a run. You got to know, you got to know people to understand, you know, the old walking mile in people's shoes. You, you got to listen to people. They tell you things that you can't learn or you don't want to learn on your own. You know, just <laughs> listen, <laughs> right. Learn, learn by their experience. Right. What's your second question? Uh, all right. Second one. If you can master one skill that you do not have right now, what would it be? Speak Spanish. All right. Why? And I, and I may try to fix that one. Okay. See, never too old to learn, right? I think that's, that's the awesome. one thing I would like to learn. I like to speak Spanish. All right. Well, and you already kind of covered number three, but if you could have dinner and conversation with one person in history, who would it be? Ken Burns. I will tell you, uh, one of the coolest people, I, I've had di- some dinners with some very cool people, but there was this guy named Ronald Lewin, uh, a great uh, British uh, historian. He wrote the first book on Ultra Goes to War, if you ever want to look at a great book. And Ronald Lewin at the time, sadly, was, uh, well, I can commiserate now, uh, he, he was dying of cancer at the time. And um, But I had dinner with him, and he told me, I didn't know anything about this whole intelligence thing. This goes way back into the, um, into the uh, early 80s. So this is the first time that this stuff is even coming out in the world. And I'm talking to the leading historian on the topic. And so I had dinner with him and he explains to me how all this JN25 code breaking stuff worked. And I'm like, and he gave me a manuscript of his book to read, but it was a manuscript then. So, you know, my knowledge of that came very early, but it came directly from the horse's mouth kind of thing. Wow. The guy who was doing the original. So that was, so Ken Burns would be kind of that kind of experience. I think I would be, we could talk about, you know, 
how do you tell a story? I'd like to, I'd like to hear, you know, how he thinks about telling us. I mean, I've seen him in interviews, but I'd like to talk about it through the games that I want, I want to do. Yeah. He's, I mean, has Ken Burns ever done anything that isn't amazing? It seems it's no. Yeah. No, I don't think, I, I think the answer is, uh, no, I think everything he does is good. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I, I, I don't care what it is. Ken Burns. I'm in, I'm, I'll watch it. Yeah. Sign yep. me up. Uh, what are three things you want more of right now? Could be physical characteristics, ideas, time, anything. What do you want more of three things? Uh, well, I'd like to spend more time with my granddaughters. Um, I'd like to, um, time, I, I, I need that. Um, you know, health is always the top of my list. Okay. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I'd like to, you know, continue to, you know, help. I'd like to help, uh, I've been trying to help people. I like helping people. Okay. All right. Good answers. Good stuff. Uh, number five, uh, what do you appreciate most in your friends? Um, no judgment. I don't judge people. I, you know, people tell me whatever they want to tell me and I just say, Hey, okay. Right. I like people who are like that also. I don't like okay. judging people. And last but not least, and I'm, I, I, I'm thinking about changing this one cause I get this way too, it's too easy a question, but what's your absolute dream job? I already have it. Say. <laughs> There you go. No, yeah, you, you can't talk to a game designer for has been doing it for his whole life and say, "What's your dream job?" What do you, you know, there was this, you know, you know, William Shatner is, of course, sure. And William Shatner, I saw this interview with him about. I, it was in the New York Times, maybe about it could have been like almost ten years ago, because uh, I because uh, uh, Leonard Nimoy was still alive, and they said to him, "So when are you going to retire?" He goes, "Retire." I said people retire when the thing they were doing they don't like doing they want to stop doing it I, I love being an actor why would i stop doing it and so i would say the same thing is why would i stop being a game designer i love being a game designer fair enough all right but you're right you need to change that question yeah i'm gonna work on number six all right fair enough all right so there you go um so seriously mark uh thank you for taking the time to do this i imagine this will not be the only time you and i sit down and no i'm chat. looking at we, we, we can play churchill we can play the, uh, fire in a lake whatever you like we'll, we'll uh yeah i i sign me up i i cannot wait i will absolutely yeah, so, take so you, you live in boston or danville one. you're in yeah boston? i'm in wakefield technically which is oh, north wakefield, anywhere that is yeah, yeah okay there you go yeah so, so i'm in harwich i'm in harwich okay well which is like the center of the cape Okay, well, then I'm sure Jess knows where this is and we can make this happen. So thank you Great. very much. I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, yeah, we'll be in touch. Uh, Keep to up the good work. Yeah, I appreciate it. You too. <laughs> some people are saying, when are you going to start doing some good work? Oh, so stop. Say. <laughs> you know, don't worry. They say that about me too. And so I don't really care. <laughs> Oh, uh, God bless you. I know this was a lot of fun and a big honor for me. So I really appreciate you doing Same this, here. Mark. Thank you. Pleasure. All right. So you guys take care. If you guys liked it, like, and subscribe down below, support the show down uh, behind me, pledgehc.com. And I'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow we are streaming Albin Viard's small city. So take care, everybody. Mark, thanks again. Take care, everybody. <laughs>